Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by Malcolm Ocean. Hi Malcolm. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast. And straight away, how would you describe the topic for today, what we're going to explore and that has helped you live a better life? Yeah, so I would say the, at the biggest level, it's something like how to have really high quality conversations that push the edges of what is of of the kinds of thoughts that you're able to think and uh, I, I wanted to talk with you about that because I know you're interested in dialectic which is another lens on that um, my lens is going to be less less on that level of abstraction and I think more on the level of something like what it means to have a shared train of thought yeah that's that's such an admirable cause and it will certainly benefit me if we can reach some conclusions and understandings and i would be really interested in hearing first of all what made you interested in in conversations at large so of course we're all humans who are going around speaking with people and yet really thinking about the mechanics and the principles behind uh, verbal communication or we could include nonverbal, I guess, as well. But um, what kind of piqued your curiosity about the whole endeavor of conversing? Um, I guess I would say it's something that I've been interested in, sort of in the background all of my life. But it really came into focus about a decade ago when I got connected with a group of people who were working on um, what you could call something like conversation as art form. and. So if you think of um, a conversation as a kind of sacred art, even if you think of uh, theater improv, right, you know, people get up on a stage and they improvise and, you know, come act out some sort of comedy scene. And um, there's a way in which like all good conversations are fundamentally also improvisational. You know, if I try to come in with all of my talking points and just lay them all out, it's not going to be a very interesting conversation. If you try to come in with a series of 10 questions you're going to ask me and you're just going to ask me the same 10 questions regardless of what it is I say, it's not going to be that interesting, right? It, any good conversation is going to be at least a little improvisational and in some sense, extremely improvisational. I don't even know what the last word of the sentence that I'm saying right now is going to end up being. And so um, so when I got involved with with this group, they were they were looking at conversation partially as an art form, partially as a, a sacred practice, almost like a meditation, and and also as a means to getting into a, a space of thinking together. And they're not the only people to point this out. I, I was at a dinner party just recently with, with some friends, and, you know, we asked, you know, I sort of put out the question, you know, what what do we even think conversation is? And one of my friends just spontaneously um, 
said, a conversation is thinking together. And that's very much how, how I view it. And in some sense, that's, that's verbal conversation. But as, as you kind of hinted at, it also includes nonverbal conversation. You know, if I'm living with my roommates and I leave a bunch of dishes in the sink, that's kind of a conversational move. It says something to them. What exactly it says is much less clear and depends on them and me and the situation and the typical practices around dishes and sink in the place that we're living and whatever they might know and so forth. But so do all conversational utterances. Ultimately, their meaning depends on context. So it's not fundamentally different. Yeah. Uh, so would you say that your your interest in, and the way you approach this is basically on some level trying to think better or come up with um, meaningful ideas just more expediently, more efficiently, right? Because we could spend our time having, um, you know, the typical kind of small talk, which is not allowed on this show and spend time or we could uh, get to the point and really be almost dancing a back and forth that allows us to to reach a truth. Which exactly. Is, mm-hmm, yeah. Which is exactly what dialectic is. So dialectic is uh, literally thinking together. It's a shared endeavor uh, to arrive at truth. Uh, it's interestingly, it can be the case that your interlocutor is not cooperating, and then it's not thinking together. Then it's arguing. Right. So there's right, that right. Side I mean, there is there is a like I'm thinking you're thinking we're kind of thinking at each other. There's mm-hmm. some chance we're going to learn something, but it's a it's it it's uh right. It, it becomes an antagonistic process at that point. Yeah, it's and and that's that's really interesting. But for me, I think I realized a, a while back that you know if you're having any trouble coming up with creative thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. What you need is to talk with somebody. Here's going to be somebody who, if they're an ally, an ally of yours, are going to come up with ideas that you would never have thought yourself. And there you go. That's creativity. Right. And and when that really gets going, you end up with this funny thing where um, one person thinks that the other person came up with the idea and the other person thinks that the first person came up with the idea because you came up with it together. And so you both associate it with each other. It's like, oh, that was that thing you came up with in that conversation. It's like, no, no, you're the one who said that. And it's like, there's, there's often not even really quite an answer to that. It's like one person put out an initial little seed of it, but th- but it definitely wasn't the full idea. And another person said, oh, well, it could be like this. And it kind of builds on itself until it's, it's not actually clear where it came from. You know, it's sort of an evolutionary process of sense making. Right, exactly. It's it's definitely something that, you know, much like building a building and each person contributes a brick and you end up with a finished product that's elegant and robust and is going to stand there for a while. Um, in terms of actually tweaking the modes of conversations you're using or techniques or anything like that, um, what are some of the things that informed you going into this and what are some of the things that you've experimented with if you have yeah so there's kind of a lot of pieces and depending on who i'm talking to i might highlight different dimensions of that um 
Let me just try to name a few to kind of give you a sense of the space that I've explored. And then you can ask about what you're most interested in. in and we can kind of weave and dance and improvise around all these. Piece number one is something about being becoming comfortable sitting with uncertainty, sitting with not knowing, sitting with a question revealed without trying to immediately answer it. Thing number two is something like seeing that there's something to what everybody's seeing and just because to just because what i'm saying and what you're saying seem to contradict doesn't actually mean that one of us is wrong it does mean there's something we don't understand it does mean that one of us has probably overgeneralized if not both of us in fact but it could be that you know we're looking at two different ends of a cylinder and I think it's a square from from the side and you're looking at the face and you think it's a, a circle and it's it's actually a 3D object. Um, so there's this piece about being able to sort of assume there's something bigger that you're looking at together and then there's the classic parable of the blind man and the elephant, right? Um, so so that's, that's thing number two is something about, you know, just because two people contradict doesn't mean that one of them are wrong, but it does mean there's something that um, they're probably each of them is not seeing. Thing three is there's something important about closing the feedback loop on knowing if you've been understood. And there's there's two main failure modes to this. One is people who don't don't speak enough, so they're not able to confirm if their understandings are shared by others or are landing for others because they don't speak enough in order to like have them land. Another is speaking too much, and this is where I've historically come from, um, where, you know, I'll, I'll go on and on about something for, you know, a minute or two, and then I'll see somebody's face looking a little bit confused, and I'll think, oh, they don't quite get it. I need to say even more things, <laughs> as opposed to sort of backing up and going, where, where, are you, where are you stuck? You know, what's, how did that land so far? And being able to, like, actually take in, you know, if I was misunderstood, how was I misunderstood? as opposed to like, oh, I don't want to be misunderstood, so I better like really explain how I actually see it. Um, because like, if somebody misunderstands you, there there is structure and there's signal to how they, un they misunderstood you. It's not simply random. It's It reveals a lot about how you spoke and it reveals a lot about what sorts of assumptions they're sitting with. So it, it's all information. There's sort of, in some sense, nothing to be discarded is I guess another principle. Yeah. So first of all, the, the first point you raised, the unknown seems to be a, a consistent theme during this podcast. And mm. uh, I'm, I'm really tempted to go down that route. Having said that, uh, the two latter points I find fascinating, and I think they can also be synthesized in a way. It's very much the case that there needs to almost always be a meta discussion between people about the concepts that are going to be used in a conversation. Like, what do we actually mean when we say X? Mm -hmm. and, and what happens is to refer to the last thing you said about talking too much. I think that with any conversation, the, the real interesting thing is that we see a lot of people introducing a lot of new concepts per sentence or whatever in a conversations. And this dramatically decreases the chances of, of any um, convergence in the future because there's just more and more uh, threads going just random places and these are not going to be 
um, tied together into some sort of meaningful fabric. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see that a lot with um, with doing dialectic and, and speaking with people. And I try to be very, very um, careful about new concepts that I'm introducing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because even a small conversation about one concept can encompass so much information. Um, so I think that's that's interesting to to remember, and it's also um, the cause, almost maybe not the only cause, but one of the causes for people to actually look at the same object from different perspectives. So from different perspectives, you see different aspects of one thing, and of course, this is what you mentioned. There might not be any agreement over what that thing is, and I completely agree with that. And I think the the direction I want to take this is is really those heated arguments that we all come across and see in today's um, society that mm-hmm. is well, way too divided um, in basically in everybody's opinion. I'm really interested in in hearing you how, how do you approach like uh, volatile discussions, potentially volatile discussions and and dealing with that? Yeah. So I guess one one piece that's kind of a corollary to the cylinder thing about seeing, you know, just because two people um see something differently doesn't doesn't mean that one of them's wrong. Um I'll give a brief caveat that like obviously there are domains in which you can be certain enough that you've understood the nature of the problem, like, you know, mathematics or, um, you know, if you're taking a measurement, you know, oh, this is five centimeters long. No, it's 10 centimeters long. It's like, if you're certain enough about things that you, anyway. Um, But anyway, a sort of corollary to that is that it's, it's in my experience a lot easier to name a problem than to name a solution. And I generally assume that uh, this is partially an assumption, but this is also also partially just literally what I found. I have found that when I look at political discourse, I agree with something like 90% of the problems that people point at. And I think about 1% of the proposed solutions are good. And part of why a very tiny percent of the proposed solutions are good is because the people who are articulating one problem don't really take into account that if they propose their solution, or if, if their solution to that problem were actually implemented, it would make a bunch of people very upset who would go and undo that solution and cause them a bunch more problems in the process. And, you know, this plays out everywhere from trying to resolve border disputes to, uh, you know, trying to resolve, you know, fights in a marriage, right? Like, and, and also, you know, political things like, oh, well, we should have, we should do this with the taxes, or we should do that with the whatever rights of whatever. Um, so if you can, if you can find a way to sort of get more problems in the room 
and really see the way that the way that they are all actually problems. And the fact that like one person is saying, well, you know, we can't keep doing coal because, you know, the environment and another person saying, well, we've got to keep doing coal because, you know, our entire, you know, nation or whatever is is based on coal mining. Like that's one of our main exports. We would be economically non-viable both globally and locally, you know, if we didn't mine coal or whatever. Yep, those are both problems. What do we do, right? And if you can actually properly sit with the fact that those are both problems, then you you can start designing solutions that would actually solve all of your problems as opposed to going, well, who's right here? Or, uh, you know, what's the right trade-off? What's the right compromise between these two things? You know, a compromise sort of famously, although not officially, is uh, a state of affairs where everybody is a little bit dissatisfied. Yeah. But the reality is if everybody's a little bit dissatisfied, they are all going to be trying to tug the, the, the state of affairs towards something that would satisfy them. You know, they're not going to rest easy in a state of being compromised. And, you know, you wouldn't want your security system to be compromised. Like, why would you want your negotiation to be compromised? Um, it's not a it's not a good state of affairs to be in. So there's something about being able to hold, okay, we have all these problems. We actually don't know how to solve all of them. Come to think of it, we honestly don't really know how to solve any of them adequately. And there's almost not even a difference because if you try to implement a solution that causes other people more problems, they're going to fight back. And so the only way to get a stable outcome is actually a win-win. Or, or, you know, extreme force, right? Extreme overpowering force. And then only still temporarily, you know, like it's. Yeah, it's a lot. It's, it requires a lot of upkeep to maintain a, a kind of domination based stability. Yeah, that's really interesting. It brings to mind, I think it's a quote that I already at one point, uh, perhaps I've um, quoted it on the podcast, but uh, Henry Miller, I think, wrote, everything that must be maintained with force is doomed. And that is uh, that is so true about about society and how we're running society, which is basically a system where, uh, like you say, there, there are not so many agreements and we've made certainly some progress about keeping in check some of the people who would resort to violence and destroy the whole uh, thing. But we're still not there in terms of actually producing consistently good results that people are satisfied with. And it's, I, I really like the framing and the fact that you point out that not many people consider the fact that um, the disgruntled losers of, of a proposition are going to actually um, develop animosity and and have some sort of backlash. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very true thing. And it also makes me think of the fact that I recently find, found out that the most heated discussions seem to be about things that for some reason are perceived by us to be huge, huge life-changing um, life and death decisions. And in, in some sense, the fact that they are so hotly debated is really should ring an alarm that tells us that they're not what we think they are. Ah, and yeah. 
and it's really interesting, like, for example, with COVID, right? So COVID is this um, epi uh, pandemic at this point. Um, it's a pandemic that goes all throughout the world and people are willing to, uh, you know, the kind of rhetoric it gets out of people. Basically, it's like everybody yeah. who's not vaccinated, you can die because, you know, and um, or, or vice versa. Of course, both camps have their uh, crazy extremists. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you zoom out and you consider the fact that there would have been a pandemic which really wipes out, decimates, you know, 10% of the population, 20% of the population, you you have to think that we would be busy actually, you know, taking bodies off the street, all of us, and not having all the time in the world to discuss and get into heated discussions because we would be a lot busier, right? Saving our lives and so on. And I think for a large degree, the same is with politics, you know, the, um, the, the huge differences uh, you usually have now. I have to. I have to <laughs> to send a caveat and to say that Donald Trump was a weird, <laughs> was an outlier and a weird thing that happened. But up until then, and and since then, probably the the differences between prime ministers. And I'm going to talk about Israel, okay? Because this is where I live. Yeah, it's really not that huge. Uh, no. at the end of the day. Um, and it's so rare that somebody is actually doing something bold or or anything like that. And all the heated discussions around it are in some, but to some degree are heated because it's not the, the hugest issue it could be, right? Totally. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff I could jump off with that. And, you know, while I also know various things about American politics. I'm also not in America, so we could talk entirely in terms of prime ministers if we wanted. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing that's that stands out to me as as relevant to something I was saying earlier is, um, and to what you just said is, you know, what what do you do if all the politicians are missing the point? Like, how do you place a vote for uh, guys? Can we can we get down to business here? But, you know, where's where's that? Where's, where's that button? And there's a fellow by the name of John Bunzel who has this really interesting proposal that he calls the Simpal Solution. And uh, this is the, there's a book by that title, which I haven't read, but I've listened to some podcasts of his and I look briefly at the book. Um, and he and Simpal stands for simultaneous policy. And the basic idea is we're having a lot of trouble with um trying to sort out global problems like climate change and like, um, you know, one of the, among the contributors to climate change are things like in order to be globally competitive, you need to really not have too many regulations on business. And there's no way to enforce having regulations on business because there's no global government that can say, no, 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 we're all going to have regulations on business. How do you get countries to come together and decide together at the same time that they're going to do same things um, in parallel. And so his proposal is essentially twofold. Um, in order to understand part one, you kind of need to understand part two. But suffice to say, part two is 
a way of solving problems collectively. Part one is a way to get or, uh, countries to decide that they are going to use that way to solve problems. And so, um, so part one is complex, but it looks something like having a small number of voters in a given region become not exactly single issue voters for using this system, but top issue voters. But the way that the system works is it's not a commitment to, you know, doing anything in particular. You're not saying like, you know, you're not calling up your local rep representative, your local candidates and saying, you know, um, hi, I'm, I'm only going to vote for you if you support this particular tax or this particular policy. What you're saying is I'm only going to vote for you if you support using simultaneous policy to resolve political disagreements. And uh, uh, and that only takes place in the context of other entities, other agents, like other governments or whatever, also wanting to use simultaneous policy to resolve disagreements. So they're committing to something that's sort of like, well, yeah, of sure, hypothetically, if this other person and me had a better way of resolving disagreements, of course I would want to use it. It's, it's kind of a no-brainer, and it's pretty easy to commit to. Mm -hmm. And then once you have a few percent of, of a given region who's saying, I'm not going to vote for anyone who doesn't support this, then kind of everybody's got to support it. Because they're just, they're not going to be able to win if, if you have a, you know, a solid voting block that's only going to vote for people who support it. And it's easy to say, well, I support it. Yeah, I would also want to resolve disagreements in that way. There's more to, there's more to the sort of the game theory of that. But then the method of actually resolving these disagreements is quite precisely the thing that I was saying a few minutes ago. You try to get all of the problems in the room without trying to solve them one by one. And then you say, okay, well, yeah, these sure are all problems. Can we find any win-wins here? You know, are there any problems that are actually each other's solutions that we can just sort of plug them in together? Um, and I don't offhand have super easy examples for this, but I mean, when a when a co-founding team of a company, you know, finds one person who wants to play one role and one person who wants to play the other role, this is just a huge win-win, right? Like, they're, they're not compromising on anything. They're like, great, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. Great, I didn't want to do any of the stuff you're going to do. Okay, great, well, let's work together. Um... And, and so, you know, sometimes you find problems that are directly solutions of each other. Other times you might just find something like, okay, well, look, we all agree that we have this problem, which is the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere. We all don't want to go first on trying to like cut down reduction, you know, cut down emissions because, you know, there's a, a economic cost to doing that. But, um, we've got, uh, you know, different countries at different stages who are who are able to make certain kinds of moves, you know, and can we find the like the best move for each country to make, which might be different. In some cases, it might be like, oh, I'm going to taper off coal. In other cases, it might be like, oh, I'm going to invest in, you know, this particular thing. And in some cases, you might say, you know, um, hey, country over here, you're actually just already doing great. So, you know, in honor of that, we're just going to like do this other nice thing for you you know, to, as part of you kind of getting on with this agreement or whatever. And then there might also be, you know, um, uh, I forget all the examples he uses, but the point is you can solve, you can solve problems better when you solve them in parallel is basically the idea. And solving them in parallel also gets outside of the idea that we need to somehow figure out 
a compromise because we're only looking at one dimension on which there can be no win-win. In order to find a win-win, you need to go up at least, and you maybe also need to go out. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's I, I agree completely. Uh, cooperation beats competition every day, basically, and it, you're so right saying saying the thing about problems and how they need to be uh, floated to the surface so we can all see them and also adopt the perspective of our um, discussion partner because. We may be talking about uh, something, uh, right? Being the blind man and the elephant, and we could—we're two different individuals. But we—it could be that we're seeing the the elephant very differently, or not seeing but touching, mm -hmm. because yeah. uh, because we have very different problems in our life. So I'm going to give a concrete example. Um, listeners of this podcast and kind of what I do know that I have a moniker saying there's more to life than living. And the reason I say it, the context is, is that I'm on Twitter. I assume that everyone around me is uh, to some degree financially secure, is living probably in a Western society um, or something close to that and would be in the worst case scenario getting uh, food stamps or something like that. In other words, I'm, I'm mostly talking to people who are not really worried day to day about what they're going to eat the next day mm -hmm. and, and are not so um, busy with survival that they don't have time to think, right? And in that context, I say there's more life to live. There's more than there's more to life than living because um, just living is apparently not that great. A lot of too many people commit suicide, even though they're perfectly physically healthy. Um, but if I speak with a friend who is, or with someone who is actually so worried about money, uh, so worried about their survival, even if it's not justified, okay? Even if he lives mm -hmm. here and actually he would be supported by the government, though he wouldn't be able to fly abroad or whatever. Yeah. If I come with my solutions, if I come with the with the with this my my pet solution, right? Your concept of why he's fine. No, you don't look. You don't understand. You don't actually have the problems that you're having. Exactly, exactly. And that is um, uh, that's arrogant. It's it's not creative because I'm not taking. I'm not going into in his shoes and seeing things from his perspective. So this is not going to lead to a to a fruitful conversation mm -hmm. and it yeah. brings me to the point that i think that when we speak with other people if we find ourselves ever in a situation where i'm saying i've heard enough from you and let's agree to disagree or whatever mm -hmm. you're, you're mm -hmm. very stupid for not receiving well my perfect idea it really says something about us we don't want to learn and we have a problem we don't recognize at that point and are not going for a solution to. Mm -hmm. Because our problem right there is that we're going to lose this person as an ally. Because yeah. we're not willing to jump in the foxhole with them and, and fight their war. Of course, it's not our war. But I need to go the extra mile to understand where they're coming from to start fixing things for both of us. Yeah. You know, and somebody might have... Oh, like somebody might have like the way that they understand um, what it means to be uh, 
you know, a, a good person or a man or um, an upstanding citizen or whatever else might say, you know, it's so shameful to accept handouts, you know, from the government or something. I'd rather die. And they might just have that as a little emotional belief floating around unconsciously that they're not thinking about. They're not aware of it day to day. But when you try to tell them, you know, no, you've got a social safety net, like, you know, you, you'd be fine, you know, if you didn't have a job and you just had to get, you know, food stamps or whatever. That would be very disturbing of a proposal to them. That would not, in fact, be fine for them yeah. because of the meaning that they're making of everything. Um, sure, they would, you know, technically, theoretically be able to eat, but they would feel that they wouldn't deserve to eat, for instance, right? Like, you know, and if you're just trying to argue with them rather than sort of seeing, no, 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 that would actually create this other problem for me. Oh, okay. Well, tell me more about that other problem. What's going on there? You know, and there are whole methodologies of therapy based on having those kinds of conversations with people. And my sense from what I've read about the work you do with dialectic is that it actually is in some sense a form of, of uh, like a very, it's very structurally similar to uh, coherence therapy, which I've um, done a bunch of as a um, client over the last year. And then I've also more recently been learning coherence coaching, which is basically um, the same sort of technique as coherence therapy, but applied to uh, coaching instead. And it's the same sort of idea of like, invite out somebody's understandings, ask them questions and notice where, hey, how does this thing sit with that thing? How, how, how are both of those the case? It seems like it seems like this is true. And it also seems like this is true. What's going on there? And if you can really hold that these are both somehow true, and yet they seem to contradict, if you can hold both of those together, something starts to open up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is it is adjacent to um, to coherence therapy from the little that I know of it. I haven't uh, gone down that rabbit hole um, exactly. It's, yeah. yeah, it sounds like coherence therapy for your concepts. Yeah, yeah. Um, dialectic is the only reason I'm not calling it a coaching practice or a therapy practice is because it's um, it's something that we should all do. And it's for well people. Uh, it's actually on your way to being a, a a mentally healthy person with a good conception of the world, which allows us to live in it kind of in a good flow. It's, it's yeah. really not about uh, having that specialized role of a therapist or coach, which is kind of this person who is in some way kind of an authority in that space or anything like that, because a person who is just asking questions is, is more a friend to you than a, than a, mm -hmm. a therapist or a coach, you know, it's, it's really not. Yeah. Um, not there to to do that so it's more about the betterment of of well people but yeah well, without disagreeing with the thrust of what you're what you're saying here i will tag that it is possible to ask people questions in a way that will tie them in knots instead first of all um and that it's also possible to do something like coaching or or even to some extent therapy from a place of profound surrender and humility where you're not actually representing yourself as understanding anything in particular about what's going on for the person or what to do about it. You're just like kind of there, um, uh, you know, helping them traverse the landscape of their own mind, basically, which is sounds like was kind of what you're talking about. So I don't think that those have to be exclusive, although I think, yeah, in many cases they are. But I would also agree with you that these kinds of basic skills that we're pointing at, you know, the 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 skill of helping people clarify what it is that they are seeing or knowing or, you know, noticing contradictions or 
tangles in their own thinking. Uh, I, I think that that's, yeah, that is something that, that I would see as a sort of necessary skill to be a good friend or a good parent or a good teacher or a good, um, you know, uh, Coworker, coworker, and in particular, you know, a good boss. But even just you know any kind of relationship that you're in, um, a romantic partnership, benefits from being able to see that everything that everybody's doing makes some kind of sense. I mean, if it didn't, they'd be doing some other apparently senseless thing. Yep. Like, so just because you don't see the sense that it makes doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. And then the puzzle is, well, how does this make sense? How does this all fit together? And, um. Yeah, and that's that's where if you can really sink into conversation with people in a way that's able to hold those unknowns, and that's I think probably why I started with that one is because it's so foundational to everything else. It's like you you're not going to get very far if you can't hold multiple unknowns. You know, if you you can only surface one unknown and then you got to try to solve it or let or or forget about it, you, you're not going to be able to fit your unknowns together. Um, and that's in my experience where the forefront is of uh both of an individual's thought and of sort of collective sense making yeah absolutely absolutely and it also makes me think of the fact that you know for me as um as i get older and hopefully wiser i realize that also coming into conversations um and specifically the conversations where there's the danger of me and the other person not seeing eye to eye on almost anything it's it's a lame resignation to kind of to revert to um a space or a type of discussion where it's a, an argument or even worse than that you know a, a tug of a tug of war yeah, um, yeah it's and in some sense my most recent thought about this is that some truths are not worth stating at the expense of um, burning a bridge with somebody, mm. which is surprising to me because I've, I've always been a rational person who cares about nothing but the truth, you know, supposedly. Yeah. And I would say that I would never hold back my, uh, I would never hold my tongue when it comes to saying the truth. Like you'd want to see the person who says the truth and it doesn't matter if it's how how well it's received or something like that. Well, I recently have been on this journey realizing that the first thing we need to make sure uh, that is present is actually at least um, at least a, a correct relationship, something that's where we can mm. be at least correct with one another and not and not go into these um wrestling matches right like verbal wrestling matches or, or having animosity or anything like that and it's only second to that like once we've diffused that we can even start beginning uh we can even start a discussion but it's never worth going down the path where you end up fighting with someone yeah and we know when you first brought up the kind of i forget what the word used was maybe it was vitriol some some v word Violent, um, something about the kinds of uh, awful conversations that people get in trying to sort out political stuff. Well, it's it's not even even quite clear if trying to sort out is is quite the thing that's being tried there. But it's there's right. this um, 
anyway, I think a lot of what's going on there often is is a feeling of unsafety that is trying that, that is trying to get itself resolved. You know, it's like if people can see it my way, then I then I'll be safe. Is sort of the the background thought there. Um, and if both people are thinking that, and neither of them has the space to listen to each other until they feel safe, then you're just at an impasse at that point. <laughs> um, there is nothing to be done um, except to find a way to back up, get that safety, and open up more space for listening, which again, you know, benefits from having assumptions like just because we see things differently doesn't mean one of us is wrong. Like huge, huge. Yeah. That's yeah, that's huge. And and that goes, you know, ties it back to uh, nonverbal communication, I think, because if you find yourself in the situation where uh, tones are going up and tensions are high and you see somebody is starting to shout, right? And feeling like they're not heard. And really you could, you could continue focusing on the content and addressing the content. Is that going to get you anywhere? Absolutely not. What you're seeing in front of you, um, are, are two things you see, uh, if you're very busy about your own kind of self that you've constructed and how you see yourself and your own feeling of unsafety, you're going to get hurt by these words, right? You're going to feel very threatened by the words uh, thrown at you and what they do to you. Well, if I accept that what whatever this person is says, I feel completely unsafe and I feel terrible. And this is probably what got me so riled up. Um, but if you're a person actually attuned to trying to have a decent dialogue and get something good out of this situation, you have to look at the other person and realize that they are the person who is feeling unsafe and they are basically crying out for help. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't know how to cry out for help. They're not being vulnerable. Right, but right. This, but there is, this, there is, that is in the background there. Oh, well, yeah. And, and you have to, you have to, you have to lower the flames and address that. What let's and, yeah. and address that as a person to person, like all the, all the content stuff, all the thought stuff. We have all the time in the world to discuss it later when we're both in a better position, but let's get her to, let's get to that better position where, where we both feel safe and we're not threatening one another. Yeah. And, and that can be, that can be very messy because it may be that the thing you're trying to talk about is the very thing that's creating the unsafety in the first place. You know, if you're trying to have a negotiation with somebody about whether, you know, I don't know, they can continue uh, uh, sleeping on your couch, right? You know, a friend of yours or something who you thought was going to sleep on your couch for one night and they've been there for nine. And you're kind of like, I'd like to, I want to talk about this. What does it even mean to get to a place of safety there if they're concerned about their material, you know, needs of shelter and you're concerned about your sense of your own boundaries and what it means to say yes or no to people? And in the meantime, where are they going to sleep, right? Like, how do you actually do that backing up when you have a live situation that is unfolding as you're trying to talk? And, okay. you know, the, the, and the time scale, of course, you know, depends, right? But it's, um, that's part of, I think, the situation that we're dealing with globally is that there's no simple place to back up to from which to have the conversation. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, when we when when the going gets tough, you know, suddenly it's there's not so much room for for discussion. That is a problem. Um, but the, the least we could do is is at least recognize their their predicament and the fact that they're worrying about shelter. Yeah, yeah. being able to honor that the other person is in a tight spot, you know, in the meantime, like literally like, hey, I see you're trying to show up for this conversation, even while you're dealing with this, you know, immediate need that you're trying to resolve, you know, dealing with, yeah, working through all that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And those are some of the things that are just necessary if we're going to have fruitful conversations with people. So to be able to shelf for a while the very volatile topic that you may be reached, uh, maybe if it's not in the case of uh, of these really immediate um, dangers, but to be able to shelf and and agree to disagree not indefinitely because i mm. don't think that's good i think we should we should always strive to agree with one another even with the people who seem to be uh disagreeing with us in the in the most um obvious and and irreconcilable way but it is okay to shelf something for a while and come mm. back to it when we have established uh a prior understanding that is necessary for having that discussion in a constructive way, right? So behind every um, problem that we can't solve right now, there probably lies a problem which we haven't identified mm. going into that discussion, which we now need to identify because we see that the discussion is not going anywhere constructive. Right, right. And that's what you were saying. Well, that's a different layer of what you were saying um, earlier about every conversation in order to be functional needs needs also kind of a functional meta conversation. Um, and meta communication has been identified as the way out of double binds. Um, a double bind being something where you both must and must not, and also must not point out that you're in this situation of having this contradiction forced on you. Um, and so the only way out is to be able to actually say, Look, I don't have any moves here. I don't have any good moves. So you, I've kind of been, you know, backed into a corner. And uh, I'd like to find a, a move that works for us. But you sort of, I haven't been handed one in the form of this question that you're asking or this, you know, decision you're trying to get me to make. And so it's like being able to have that that medic conversation creates or can can when it works when there's you know enough safety for it and so forth. Um, that meta conversation is what unblocks the bind. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so important and and so um, and and so yeah, basically just so important to to remember and and go down that route because we want to have um, good outcomes to conversations. We don't want to spend our time either. Uh, conversing about completely useless things which are not actually contributing to our well-being. And we certainly don't want to ruin our day by um, becoming angry, exasperated, um, desperate, whatever, because we've just had uh, an awful uh, conversation with somebody and some bad words were thrown in the air and, you know, everybody feels terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so I think everything we just said is is kind of essential to, to having those better conversations. And I want to maybe go back a little bit and ask you if um, you have some examples or fields in your life where um, 
you've had a chance to implement some of the things or that it's taken mm. you um yeah either in a business context or or a relationship context anything if you have some memorable examples of um maybe things clicking with regards to how the conversation is going yeah yeah well there's there's one interesting idea that comes to mind with respect to um business context which is that um i've been running this software company um for wow coming up on nine years eight 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 and some years um and uh and i'm just i'm just in the process of gradually onboarding a friend of mine george to um work on a bunch of different projects including some of the software and he had a bunch of um kind of well let's just say the code base was sort of uh not optimized for anybody other than me and so he's coming into this code base being like oh man uh this is i don't really feel at home here and he had kind of brought this up you know a year or two ago when he first started doing a little bit of work um on it in kind of a one-off sense um but at the time i was sort of like well look it's it's the way i like it and you're not you're not a very major stakeholder here. So I'm going to, you know, keep it the way I like it. But, but as he's been joining the team more full time, we, we had another conversation about it because he was like, Hey, it would really make a difference to me if we could somehow make the code base feel more at home for me. Is there a way we could do that? And we, we talked about a bunch of different options and surfaced one of the proposals that, that he had originally made around using a, an automated tool to kind of format the code. You know, it's just one piece, right? There's obviously a lot of other layers to what makes a code base good. Um, and I had been resistant to this because there was a particular way that I was formatting the single quotes and double quotes in my particular code editor that was helpful for me to know what was going on. And I didn't want to ruin that with this, this new system. And, but then as we talked about it, I was like, well, come to think of it, I could actually write a custom style for my code editor that would automatically highlight these things without having to tag them with single quotes or double quotes. And that would almost kind of be even better than the way I have been doing it. And it was that that shift from weight, like, there's actually a thing here that I like better. You know, I can satisfy George and the particular thing he's asking for, not at cost to myself, but actually at benefit to myself. And I wouldn't have stopped to think about the opportunity to make that system work. And it might not have been worth it sort of just for me, but it did ultimately get me to a, a place that I liked better. And um, yeah, that's that's a really cool thing to notice when it's like, you come up with a solution trying to solve, again, multiple problems at once that ends up being a better solution to those problems than you would have come up with if you'd only been trying to solve them one by one. Yeah, and that, of course, happened also because um, he was uh, good enough to approach you and actually start a conversation about the whole thing. And I really like the fact that you use uh, the metaphor of of uh, joining into a home, an existing home. For you, a home is a place where you already feel at ease and, you know, the place where you can actually chill and relax and not worry about something. 
and mm-hmm. inviting somebody into your home is not uh, you know even if they're a good friend it's it's it can be hard and mm-hmm. it can and be then hard. if you're actually saying you know okay not just you're going to come hang out in my home but we're actually going to live together yeah well we might have to find some different ways of doing things and i i think that that basic principle applies all the way up you know like are you and i living together well not in the same house not in the same country not in the same continent even but we share a planet we do have to somehow get along we have to somehow take care of this planet together and somehow humanity needs to make decisions on various scales that somehow make this planet more or less home for all of us and that's a really big puzzle and if we can't even have those conversations on the on the scale of you know, little company disputes or relationship, you know, romantic relationship disputes or whatever. Uh, good luck trying to trying to solve <laughs> that at a uh, you know political scale. And you know, people have, of course, the solutions that they have. It's not like you know it would be naive to say, well, there's just nothing we can do in the meantime. Then we've got a first solve this perfectly on the scale of two people before we can scale it up. It's like, no, I mean, you've got simultaneous policy as a proposal from John Bunzel, for instance, which is in some way part of a solution that could be applied at a huge, you know, global scale. Um, and so it's not like you can't be thinking about it all in parallel, but it's, it's quite striking, I think. And this is, you know, when I say, when I said at the start, I'm really interested in what good conversation looks like. I think to some degree, like I'm talking about a quality of conversation that most people don't have at any point in their year. Like, it's not just like, oh, you know, what, what's what's good conversation? It's like, no, no, what is really good conversation? What is conversation that consistently produces insights and solutions to problems that nobody's solved before? And like that quality of conversation. And, and that's largely what I'm trying to figure out how to do more generally, how to invite other people into that. and. um yeah, and train them in, you know, what, ah, and then there's a puzzle of like, what aspects of that are something that needs something like training, you know, just like practice, you know, training wheels, or, you know, like just going through the motions until you get it, or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what aspects of that need better understandings, you know, does somebody really get the thing about, you know, we can both, we can disagree and neither be wrong? Do people really get that? Or are they sort of stuck in a model where, everything is logical and thus if two things seem to contradict one person must be wrong not everything is logical like that which is not to say that logic doesn't work when it works because it does but if you haven't defined all of your terms you can't just use logic on it uh logic only works in the domains where it works and that's part of the magic of it so um so so part of its part of its training part of its new frameworks new new viewpoints new ways of seeing things and those aren't totally separable part of it may also be you know working on um things like trauma to create more safety for people in working with disagreement and working with um uh being comfortable in the meantime when they don't know how to resolve some sort of uh tension that they have with somebody on whatever scale um i think there's more but those certainly feel like three pretty core pieces um, but I also think that what the training actually is training in is is not 
not totally obvious. And I only have a few rough sketches myself at this point of what that training would actually look like. I'm thinking of designing a workshop on it, but I, I, I'm, I feel fairly far away from actually having a finished product. Yeah, no, that would be a great contribution. And the more we talk about it and the more we explore the concept of, of conversation and more specifically an excellent conversation, the more it seems like you could have all the tips, you know, the list of tips that we know from all sorts of places of how to kind of um, troubleshoot uh, a conversation or how to go through it and have some sort of algorithm for having a good conversation. But as with so many other things in life, I think what you want is not to have people with the kind of technical know-how what to do in a conversation because it's such a free-flowing, fast-flowing thing that's going back and forth. Rather, it's about creating us, each and every uh, one of us, as a person who understands what what conversation is in in a, in on a higher level um another big thing that comes to my mind is curiosity right because i find mm -hmm. that for me uh speaking to many many different other people it's it's really sparked my by my curiosity and the human uh, psyche is just infinitely interesting for me and if somebody is really saying and meaning something that is very much foreign to me. Um, so mm -hmm. as, a, as a tour guide, I had to take people on a tour in Israel and many of them were um, fundamentalist uh, Christians or Jews, okay, people whose mm -hmm. worldviews are, are very different from mine. Um, and that that could have been that could have been creating tension for the you know five days that we're together. It could have been not fun. Um, but instead, I I chose consciously to really see the world as they do, and knowing that you know, even if I listen to them and I run the thoughts in my head, and that's a big thing. You are not your thoughts, right? Mm. A lot of people are not willing to even um, take on the perspective of another person because that means that they need to think their thoughts. And a lot of people identify with their thoughts, and they think that they immediately have been converted in some way. Um, so that's a big mm -hmm. thing. So uh, curiosity and yeah, openness, um, not having a, a strong ego. These are all meta skills, as you say, that really make up a good conversationalist. And it's less about, um, you know, giving you five tips on how to ask a question in real time. Actually, people are so diverse that any sort of baggage that you're bringing into a conversation, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Any sort of, you could have at best an outline of what you, you want to achieve with a conversation, but you can't actually uh, force the how it's actually moving through the terrain, right? And that's a good right. thing because we because want certain you, Because you have to interface with what's actually there. Yeah. 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 The you are not your thoughts thing is a very good point. I've jotted that down as like another sort of piece of, of view that sort of people need to have, you know, in addition to the, in addition to the thing about, you know, disagreement, not implying somebody's wrong. Um, there's something really powerful adjacent to that, that in order to be comfortable trying on other people's thoughts, it's like part of what you need is like the, you are not your thoughts thing, but there's also something you need that's kind of self trust. It's a kind of like trust that I will actually naturally 
tend to see the world in the ways that make the most sense to me. And so if I try on another viewpoint that makes less sense, I don't have to be worried about, you know, accidentally getting stuck in it because uh, I'll be able to zoom back out and go, well, yeah, I can kind of see it that way, but that's definitely not my best model of what's going on with the world. You know, I can sort of see how it would look from that angle, but that's that's a very incomplete view. And I have, you know, another view that feels more more central to how I'm seeing things. Trusting that you're not going to lose touch with that, I think, is something that a lot of people don't have and that is um, really important for people to develop as a capacity. And it's it's a kind of weirdly self-reinforcing thing because the more the you more the more you trust that about yourself, the more you can relax and the more you can expand back out, the less you trust that you're going to be able to like comfortably that you're going to be able to fall back in with your own best models of things when you're not trying on other people's. The less you trust that, the more you kind of need to guard your models, which actually makes them more brittle. They can't take in more information. And so then somebody comes at you from left field and says, well, but what about this? And you go, well, I never considered that. And then now you've lost touch with your model because you were busy guarding it from the world and it didn't know how to talk to other models. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 such a classic example to, uh, you know, where you're in a in a tough spot where a lot depends on you adopting a certain viewpoint, right? A dogma, oh, like yeah. following That's a dogma, you know? So, yeah. so many of us are conditioned to um, live in a place where we know that um, our acceptance in society, in the society we live in is conditioned, right? It depends on us saying some sort of thing and repeating some um, dogma that everybody agrees on, even though it doesn't make much sense, you know, and it's these places that will make you really um, intolerant when it intolerant when it comes to hearing a different opinion, because you don't have the confidence in your own view. You don't have the confidence that your understanding is wholesome and mm. and and well founded. Mm -hmm. if, if and if it's not, if it's just a dogma you you adopted from somebody who told you, you know, think this or else. Of course, you're going to be very, very threatened by hearing something that uh, could very well prove more logical to you, whether you yeah. like it or not, right? So you yeah, have to yeah, push, yeah, yeah, push back. and that's that is part of the part of the thing. And and I think pe people, some people think that that only happens with external dogma, but as far as I can tell, it happens with internal, like overgeneralizations as well. You know, people have really rigid beliefs about how people are like based on their childhood experiences or their you know, their first, you know, they, they, they date one person and then they say, oh, men are so whatever, or women are so whatever. And, and then they come up with some generalization about how people are. And it's like, well, this guy is, yeah, <laughs> at least in this circumstance with you. Or he was last year anyway, when you dated him, but like <laughs> being able to actually say, well, what do I actually know about all such whatevers? Well, maybe I don't actually know that much. Um, but but if you if you kind of have your thing of oh i need to believe that all you know of whatever gender has whatever problem in order to not feel bad about my relationship ending then if somebody tries to point out that people aren't you know they're not all like that you kind of go whoa 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 hold up yeah hold up sir you are not about to make me feel bad about my relationship ending that's uh, not my responsibility i i had a i have a i have a belief protecting me from that don't you yeah. dare threaten my belief, you know? 
And it's like, you know, and again, all of those beliefs, you know, they contain they contain a bit of truth. You don't end up with a belief from nothing. They're all they're all based on something. Um, you know, even the most egregious dogma, you know, largely has some basis in something, right? Um, even if it's totally overwrought, or even if it's, you know, here's a problem. And so you got to get behind our solution. And even if the solution has almost nothing to do with the problem, you've just impressed people enough with your, here's what the problem is, that when you name the solution, they feel like, well, we better go for it then. I wouldn't want to contribute more to the problem. You know, and they're not really, you know, by that point, they're not really thinking that much about how, how it's related. Yeah, absolutely. And this, uh, again, I think it's an opinion I expressed on this podcast before, but this is for me a, a really good framing of the thing, connecting it with problems and solutions, because many of the solutions that I don't find appealing at all today, um, for example, I talk a lot about how uh, following a code of any kind is is bound to make you do unjust things, because mm -hmm. if you live by an algorithm, basically that tells you what and what not to do there has got to be that one time where in context the thing that the code told you to do is not ju the just thing and you right? can tell and you like, can tell oh yeah. yeah yeah you can tell but but you're yeah. going to ignore it because you have um external validation that you did right you follow the code yeah. um so this this is for me a big thing that i'd like to to push is that the whole problem with, for example, the meaning crisis is looking at the wrong problem because there are many mm. beautiful, well-spoken solutions to the, to the supposed problem, which is the meaning of life crisis. And people are trying to redefine life in a way uh, as to give it a different meaning. Where I say, well, that's not the problem. Life, the problem is that we know what life is, not that we don't know. Life is what we share with bacteria and fungi. And this is exactly why people are not happy just living, because they have something extra in their consciousness that ah, they can so the relate The issue is not with. so much the meaning of life, but the meaning of meaning. The meaning of living well. We mm. have a concept of what it means to live well and live badly. And what we want to yep. do is live well. It's, it's exactly the problem that we are alive and we know that we co will continue to be alive tomorrow. We're not worried about survival. That is the problem. And instead of forcing a new meaning on the concept mm. of life, we need to qualify life in terms of good or bad. Yeah, huh, so, interesting. So this is a place where I say, uh, look at the problem the the solutions you're trying to force solutions or something that is not um first of all illogical to redefine life in terms of whatever hero's journey whatever no oh, that's not right, life. Right. yeah yeah no that's not life life is information processing within an organism that's capable right. of Just a bit of systems yeah yeah um <laughs> so anyway this is this is a, a pet peeve of mine the meaning process that i you, i like you might like have you have you checked out john verveke's work I know him, yeah. Uh, okay. My wife, my wife is um, is a student of Rafe Kelly, who's been speaking to him a lot. Rafe Kelly is a natural parkour uh, specialist. is in okay. Bellingham these days, so not yeah. far from you. Because I think Raveki has a thing about meaning in life as opposed to meaning of life, which seems kind of resonant with what you're pointing at here. 
Yeah, yeah, it could be. I, I do dig some of this stuff. I'm, I'm not a, a scholar of him by any yeah. means or anything he, like that. He's put out a lot of videos at this point, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but I, that's I checked just, out the first piece of his paper on relevance realization, and it seems really neat. Um, and related to the whole puzzle of how to have a good conversation, because part of the nature of a good conversation is how do you figure out what's relevant? How does what's relevant have both consistency, but also the capacity to evolve as new elements flow in? And how do you curate that? And how does how do different people's curation functions actually enhance each other? Because we notice different things, different things are salient to us. Um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 so interesting. I mean, it uh, and again, it highlights the fact that uh, going into a conversation, it's probably good to have some sort of idea what um, uh, what it is about, right? So, not every conversation. <laughs> what it's, what it's for. for? Yeah, what it's for exactly. What it's what it's good for. What is going to be an outcome that we're happy with. And yet, keeping in mind that it could be derailed because we, uh, like we said before, we found, we stumbled, we stumbled onto a problem that we now realize has to be resolved first before we get right, to the yeah. problem we thought. In we order to even to. get to the all the other ones, yeah. Yeah, so, man, I really love it. Uh, I think we've, we've gone over the one hour mark, uh, not that it's a bad thing. And it just seems to be to be a, a good place to to kind of take it back to living well for conclusions and just saying a few last meta things about this conversation that I just wish um, we were able in in some way to explore the whole concept of conversation and give people some nutritious food for thought about what it means to have a, a meaningful conversation and a successful conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Any any last thoughts? I think that one of the most one of the most powerful things you can do to enhance your conversation is if you can hold the question uh, non-neurotically, which is which is a big ask for some people. So I, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting anxiously considering the following question. Um, if, if you're prone to anxiety, focus on that. But if you can hold the question non-neurotically, what makes conversation really good? If you can have that in the back of your mind while you're having a conversation and just notice, where does the conversation break down? What, what happens when a conversation breaks down? It's very, it's very different with two people versus five people versus more. Um, but you, you know, you can start to notice little generalities and sort of see, oh, conversation is, you know, it's not very good when, you know, one person kind of hogs the train of thought and sort of kind of unsatisfying or conversations, you know, not, not very good when, you know, nobody really knows what, why we're here. Right. Or you can kind of notice the little edges of like, Oh, what makes, what makes conversation work, work better. And, um, you know, that, that can be both just a really cool thing for you to notice in your own life. Um, but also, if you do come up with some generalizations, I am interested, uh, and you can uh, reach out to me on various platforms. I am the only Malcolm Ocean out there, and uh, <laughs> so as long as you can spell Malcolm, uh, you can find me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such a that's such a great tip. You know, have have the conversation, and if it breaks down, don't fret about it, but actually do a post mortem and see where things. Um, went wrong and what could be done better 
And to me, the solution to neuroticism is always, while we want to have the best conversations that we want to have and excellent conversations, if you don't want to be neurotic about, uh, I'd say, anything in life, just remember that um, a good enough thing is good. It is good. Just don't mm. worry about optimization. Mm. Yeah, optimization yeah. is a big enemy. This yeah. is what yeah, brings yeah. on the anxiety and neuroticism for sure. Yep. Um, yeah, Malcolm, thank you so much. And I, I would love you. Um, I would love for you to more explicitly uh, kind of tell listeners uh, where to find you, uh, your website, and thoughts, and everything like that, and what you do. Yeah. So, um, so my, my personal blog is malcolmotion.com. Um, and Malcolm has a silent L in it, like the word calm. Um, we'll call the one in calm is slightly less silent, but, uh, M-A-L-C-O-L-M. Salmon. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, kind of like salmon. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, malcolmotion.com or at Malcolm underscore ocean on Twitter. Those are sort of the two main places to find me. Yeah, I've got I've got a lot of writing on on my blog and I guess also on Twitter about the kinds of topics that we're uh, we've been exploring on on today's today's episode. So if you're interested in more of this, if you're interested in more of me talking, there's I've been on a number of other podcasts um, by now and you can find those somewhere listed somewhere on my site. Wonderful. Well, thank you for a lovely conversation, Malcolm. Yeah, thank you, uh, Al. So we just ended the recording and Al was saying, you know, oh, this is really nice. Felt like just, you know, a casual conversation between, you know, friends or what would you say? A curiosity call, I think is what you called it. Um, and I was saying, yeah, for me, it's like I'm I'm really comfortable and familiar with recording my conversations. It's actually something that I've uh, done a lot of, you know, uh, both with Zoom calls, but also uh, various groups that I've been part of have done a lot of just making voice memos of the entire conversation. And you can go back and listen to it later. and make a transcript or, you know, revisit a part where you suddenly got triggered and be like, why did I get triggered right there? Or, you know, revisit a part where, you know, he said, you know, you said this, no, I said that, well, well let's go look. And um, I talk a bit more about that philosophy on um, on my podcast with uh, Tashin Fogelman, his, uh, his Reach Truth podcast. So if you're interested in sort of understanding more about the, um, the art of recording conversations, uh, that is over there. But I, I wanted to mention it just because it ties in so powerfully with this thing we've been talking about the whole the whole time. Like, you know, it, it just felt like a really important thing to mention in the context of talking about what makes for a good conversation. It's like if you can see conversation as both an art form to be experienced live as we are right now, you and I, um, but also as a conversation, as, as an art form to be experienced later as you, the listener, are right now for you but not now in my now um th there's something kind of potent that can happen there and again only when you're able to let go of a kind of neurotic energy towards making sure it goes right you know it has to be done with a kind of play um but when when you can get that it's really cool and part of how i have become so so interested in and uh have you know so many thoughts about what makes conversation good is by really iterating on it and having this feedback loop of not just, you know, postmortems on a conversation kind of, oh, how did that go? But like really drilling into how did that go? So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, coming to doing podcasting, I thought that I would not enjoy the editing. And it turns out that I have the best time listening to good conversations that I had. So here's another one that can go in this um, uh, 
blooper reel. Um, if you had a good conversation, it's probably better to re-listen to it than have some sort of conversation which you're not, which you know is not going to be as good as that. So there's no shame in re-listening to a conversation. It's actually um, pretty good. And as you say, you can uh, also learn about the the mechanics of it and and how it went well. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that addition. That's awesome. Cool. cool.